As a boy growing up in Poughkeepsie, New York, I rarely encountered fresh vegetables myself. It's not that New York gardeners don't grow vegetables. It's just that both my parents grew up in strict households where they were forced to eat their vegetables. And they both agreed when they had children that they were not going to impose that on their children. So we were somewhat anti-vegetarians in our house. Our produce was limited to ears of corn when it was in season and the obligatory cans of peas at Thanksgiving when my grandmother came to visit. It wasn't until I met my wife and went to visit her family home in New Jersey when I bit into a succulent, fresh Jersey tomato that I realized what I'd been missing. So when we moved to Maine and bought our first house, I immediately set out to planting a garden. Now, I won't bore you with all the details of that first year of gardening. And remember, I had no experience whatsoever. My crop that first year, I kid you not, was one jalapeno pepper. (laughs) That's all I got out of it. But I have gotten better each year, a little bit better. And as my techniques have improved, I still haven't lost the sense of wonder and awe that I get when I enter my garden. I'm still amazed each season that with just a little bit of effort, I can bring forth from the earth such an array of beautiful and delicious offerings that sustain me and my family. It truly is a miracle to me. There is something about standing in the middle of a garden intimately in contact with nature's processes of birth and growth and death that touches the deepest part of my soul. The preacher, Howard Thurman, captures this feeling when he writes, The earth beneath my feet is the great womb out of which the life upon which my body depends comes in utter abundance. There is at work in the soil a mystery by which the death of one seed is reborn a thousandfold in the newness of life. He goes on, the magic of wind, sun and rain creates a climate that nourishes every living thing. It is law and more than law. It is order and more than order. There is, he writes, a brooding tenderness out of which it all comes. In the contemplation of the earth, I know that I am surrounded by the love of God. As I cultivate and nurture the plants that will nourish me, I too am nurtured and nourished. As I experience that brooding tenderness to which he refers, the fragility of the early shoot or vine, the smoothness of the skin of the fruit as I bring it to my lips, I am connected to that larger presence which Dr. Thurman calls God. If you are a gardener, I think you know whereof I speak. Do I see some nods, some amens maybe even? I will tell you that the science of gardening doesn't interest me much. I don't read books or magazines to learn about maximizing output or the benefits of some new type of tomato cage. I practice what I call guerrilla gardening. Each spring, I order the seeds I want. I have a a pile of manure delivered, and I spread it into the beds, and then I sow the seeds. And from that point on, it's pretty much up to Mother Nature. I have a theory about weeding I will tell you about. And that theory is that the bigger the weeds are, the easier they are to pull. 
So I wait. I wait so I don't have to bend over quite so far. It works. It works. So it really is up to Mother Nature. And the miracle is that no matter what I do, it seems she provides. I am compelled. I'm compelled to attribute my garden's vitality to something greater than my own effort, something beyond myself. As I place a seed in the soil of spring, I know that somehow through some great mystery, through what Dr. Thurman calls the magic of wind, sun and rain, this small speck will yield incredible riches. If it's true that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, then planting a garden is about as pure an act of faith as you can get. The author and former Catholic monk Thomas More has defined a garden as, quote, the meeting of raw nature and the human imagination in which both seek fulfillment of their beauty. Isn't that lovely? I'll read it again. The meeting of raw nature and the human imagination in which both seek the fulfillment of their beauty. The garden is a place where we can live faithfully in partnership with the larger movements and workings of the divine and find fulfillment of nature's and our own creative urges. Regardless of the size of our garden or the vagaries of the weather, it seems that we invariably end up with more vegetables than we can eat. It is impossible, impossible for my wife and I to consume all the beans and peas and tomatoes and even zucchini, of course, that our garden offers up. So once our garden begins to produce, we begin the second miracle of the garden. We take our vegetables out to our neighbors and we share them. Neighbors come to visit us and we urge them to stay for a meal of stuffed peppers. And as they walk out the door, we foist a big bag of green beans on them. Weekends and evenings, we venture out into the neighborhood, visiting friends and acquaintances and leaving behind bags full of our garden's bounty. And throughout it all, we hear stories of their kids triumphs on the soccer field or how one of their parents is suffering with the early stages of Alzheimer's, how their jobs are going or where they've been on vacation. And along with the vegetables, we share pieces of ourselves as well. So as I say, this is the second miracle of the garden. Through nature's gift of abundance, we create the gift of community and connection. The vegetables that hold the sun and the wind and the rain, these treasures of our collaborative efforts with nature, become the vehicles through which we become bound to each other. The quiet, persistent and solitary time of cultivation yields the delicious fruit of association and friendship. Now, whether my friends and family actually fry up the zucchini that we give them or just leave it on their kitchen counter till it goes all soft and they throw it out or maybe they regift it. None of that really matters. None of that matters because it has served its purpose. Its purpose in bringing us together. As testimony to this second gift of the garden, I'll tell you that the neighbors who left that Baby zucchini on our doorstep more than 30 years ago are still among our closest friends. 
Of course, the garden's bounty only lasts so long, and many of you may not garden at all. What can you do? What can we do when the last squash of autumn has been picked? Or, like many, you've never put a blade to the soil. It's easy to appreciate abundance and to be generous, of course, when the garden hangs heavy with the fruits of our efforts. We can be grateful for nature's gifts when we can touch and smell and taste them when they're staring us right in the face, taking over our kitchen counters. The hard part is to uncover the abundance that surrounds us all year long and to share that with our neighbors as well. You may not know a hoe from a rake, but each and every day we are all presented with a chance to live life abundantly. And so I wonder, what would it look like to live life abundantly? To be present to the abundant gifts that are offered up to us on a daily basis. What would that look like? Again, I will turn to the garden for some direction. I think a life lived abundantly means that we plan and look forward to the future with optimism, with hope, with faith. It means that we prepare. We need to till the soil of our lives deliberately, conscious of what ingredients may be lacking, where we need to ask others for support. It means that we make some conscious choices about what to plant and what to forego just now. Living life abundantly means getting our hands dirty and doing the hard, sometimes backbreaking work. At the same time, realizing and appreciating that whatever happens is not solely accountable to our efforts. It means praying for rain when it's hot and dry and praying for the sun to come out when the gloomy Paul persists week in and week out. Living abundantly means recognizing that we can't get from where we are to where we want to be all by ourselves, that everything we produce is a collaborative effort with the divine forces of nature and each other. To live abundantly is to engage our work with love and compassion and a deep, deep sense of gratitude and to approach each task with the faith that something miraculous will come of it. It means taking the fruits of our labor, which will blossom and multiply beyond our imaginations, out of our homes and into the streets. It means sharing them with those around us. Finally, I think living life abundantly, and sometimes we find this hard to do, living life abundantly also means remaining open to receiving from others the bounty which they offer to us, particularly when our own larder is empty, when our well is dry. Alice B. Toklas, who is perhaps better remembered for her baking than for her gardening, wrote this. There is nothing that is comparable to it, as satisfactory or as thrilling as gathering the vegetables one has grown. I don't deny the thrill I get from plucking a ripe tomato or picking a bushel of beans. But the incomparable pleasure comes not just in the gathering, 
but in the sharing. So I say to you today, as I should have said to my friend those years ago, the friend who shunned the lowly zucchini, you can never have too much zucchini. We should plant row upon row of it more than we could consume in a summer or even a lifetime. We all are called to cultivate with loving care the gifts that we have to offer until our baskets are overflowing. And then, and then we need to take them out and feed a hungry world. This day and every day, I wish you peace. Amen. I invite you now into a time of prayer, meditation, and reflection, and I want to offer up the words of Unitarian minister Max Kutz, who wrote this prayer of thanksgiving. Please pray with me. Let us give thanks for a bounty of people, for children who are our second planting, and though they grow like weeds and the wind too soon blows them away, May they forgive us our cultivation and fondly remember where their roots are. Let us give thanks for generous friends with hearts and smiles as bright as their blossoms, for feisty friends as tart as apples, for continuous friends who, like scallions and cucumbers, keep reminding us that we've had them. For crotchety friends, sour as rhubarb and as indestructible. For handsome friends, who are as gorgeous as eggplants and as elegant as a row of corn. And the others, as plain as potatoes and as good for you. Let us give thanks for funny friends, who are as silly as Brussels sprouts and as amusing as Jerusalem artichokes and serious friends as unpretentious as cabbages, as subtle as summer squash, as persistent as parsley, as delightful as dill, as endless as zucchini, and who, like parsnips, can be counted on to see us through the winter. For old friends nodding like sunflowers in the evening time, and young friends coming on as fast as radishes. Let us give thanks for loving friends who wind around us like tendrils and hold us despite our blights, wilts, and witherings. And finally, let us give thanks for those friends now gone, like gardens past that have been harvested, but who fed us in their times that we might have life thereafter. For all these, we give thanks. Amen.